there's no magic Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. Yeah. You know, it's just, that's how every place works. You figure it out. Some places are different than others. But um, in that year especially, everyone was scrambling to figure it out. And uh, so one of the labs, we went mostly computer, which is nice. That's really nice thing about our field is compared to some other sciences, we have a very portable art because we're digitized now. It's really amazing. We don't realize you know, you could go do, you know, you have a laptop, you could do science and yeah. do engineering, which is cool. Um, other fields have, you know, all these time issues and material yeah. issues that, that were, they had to stop for COVID. And we, you know, DMC went home, did lab, did like simulate labs, did MATLAB labs. Oh, no. And that's, DMC is half, honestly, most of the, time in DMC lab is computer based I and mean, based on yeah. a few physical experiments. Have you been through yet? No, I'm taking it next month. Okay, okay, cool. And so that one went home, became a computer lab, easily already was, but measurements, you know, was, I didn't know what to do. So we did breadboards at home. We had little, little pocket scopes. There's a whole, yeah, that's right there. They're back in that cabinet is Function generators, oscilloscopes, power supplies, and that yep. was measurements at home. Yeah, I can show you. I was going to try to. Do you think that, again, like mechanical engineering is a pretty good spot right now, just with like the uh, the big projects that are happening, and also, um, like you said, like we don't need like a, a dedicated lab to do a lot of the stuff that we have to, how we can work on. We could all do it on a either a computer, like even like in CAD or in MATLAB Simulink. So. Yeah, it's a it's a very yeah it's a flexible space, and then you you for as a student you won't necessarily have a permanent lab or uh, yet for a little bit of time, and so you can get a lot done at home. You can get a lot done on your mobile workstation, your your laptop, um, and it it because you have a lot of tools, you know, software based tools. Um, I say you could do that anywhere, but. It would be hard to do it without the software that you have access to. Sometimes I think about what it would take to to do my own designs without the university, and it, it, at minimum, I'd have to have a software package, you know. Yeah. And so we do get a lot of the resources here. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to tell you about was the uh, the robot project that you were working on with the um, was it Y twelve or was it a, another um, nuclear? Well, I, oh, so we're, we're on several different robot projects. Um, uh, I think the closest that I've gotten to Y12 is we work with some students. We have, uh, you know, a PhD cohort that are Oak Ridge, um, Oak Ridge National Labs students. So they may be thinking about a different project. The project that you're referring to is probably the TVA power plant project. So, um, that project is titled the TVA Ice Condenser, is for short, and its a long name would be Thermal Treatment of Power Plants. Um, and that's not the official name, but uh, Thermal Treatment in Nuclear Power Plants, and it's a TVA-related or TVA-funded project we're working on in the Mechanical Engineering project, uh, Department. 
Yeah, I'll just stay closer and talk louder. I guess I, I have a low voice, kind of mumble. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know if you know uh, Lex Friedman, but he gets that uh, <laughs> criticism all the time. <laughs> he, he just mumbles. Who's that? Uh, he's a... He was a researcher for MIT's like robotics and all the autonomous vehicles, but oh, yeah. now he, he has a podcast, and he yeah he's like this like Russian professor guy, so he just he just has like a very like monotone voice that's like kind of low, and people com- like complain about it, but I mean he, he has a lot of good uh good ideas and good guests on, so it's it kind of balances it out. There's a reason why people listen to him, so it's it's not it's not like the main like. It's not that big of a, a detriment. I was, yeah, like I was it. actually listening to a YouTube with a guy talking about actually the nuclear robots in Fukushima. You know, Fukushima yeah. nuclear robots. This guy's YouTube was, uh, I don't remember what it was, but he was super dry. I mean, he sound, sounded like robot voice, and he was just <laughs> spitting out the information. But I mean, he was getting views, so that's one approach just to get the information out. Yeah, but he wasn't doing an interview, and he was uh, doing like a voiceover, just like a, uh, a okay. overview of a topic. You know, he did like the last twenty years in nuclear rope because Fukushima ha- the disaster happened uh, not twenty years ago, but fifteen years ago yeah. almost. Was it two thousand seven or eight? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, if you're just trying to get the information across, adding a lot of bells and whistles doesn't necessarily help. I mean, no. and so I. <laughs> On, in class, I go back and forth. We add a little bit of story, but then I kind of realize the students aren't there to hear me tell stories and talk about myself, and we kind of want to get, you know, get the material across. So there's a balance, I think. Yeah, everywhere. I mean, it, it kind of helps the the more personal side because people get like um, they say more invested than just you know reading from a lecture the entire time. It kind of, I don't know. There's like a big lull in like, uh, you you have on Monday, so it's only like 50 minutes. But if it's like the 120 minute class where it just like just drags on, it, it kind of needs um some some like reengagement, like um. Yeah, I mean, even 50 minutes of listening to someone talk is probably too long. I think there's research that shows that you can pay attention for so many minutes. 50 minutes is past that past yeah. that number um, so we try to I mean that's one of the things I'm trying to do in measurements is do those activities they're not great they need development but I know it helps the added the morale to break the lecture in half and it's, it's clear that it makes the time flow faster <laughs> obviously and and less you know drag I guess yeah, I wanted to talk to you about the uh, the the robot with the uh, the nuclear waste. Yeah, so, so the project we're working on is we're, we're working on a project, a TVA funded project, and we're developing a tool for a, a thermal treatment in the nuclear plant, and um, the, that's an ongoing research project here at Tennessee Tech. So. I can, you know, share some details, but you know, yeah. I can't. I can't say everything. No, that's all right. I just talked to. Uh, do you know uh, Elijah um, Barrett? He's in uh, machine design. 
but he, he works for Y12 too. So you could uh, talk about a few things, but obviously there's a yeah. lot of uh, red yes. tape there. From the big picture, what we're doing is building a tool to go into a hard to reach place and you know perform a, a thermal treatment. So it's actually a de-icing job hmm. um, in the in the plant. And so right now we're working on the set of tools to do that, set of procedures, um, and we're in the prototyping and testing stage right now. Um, the primary part of the tool is, you know, is a robot arm. It's a remote, remote deployed robot arm that has this de-icing tool mounted on the end. So, I mean, you've probably seen and heard of a lot of different robot arms and the kind of the different different type of application um, than maybe a traditional manufacturing environment that we see robot arms in. Yeah, so what, what are some of the challenges of, like, the, uh, the robot arm and the application that you're trying to design it for? Well, uh, there are several different challenges in this problem because it's a, it's a complex problem. Um, from my side, the engineering challenges that I've been dealing with the most are, uh, we could divide them into kind of mecha- mechanics challenges, mechanical challenges, and then uh, software, or I would probably say software, and then electronics. So I really want to describe them. I could split them into three areas. And um, uh, there are robot arms available. So mechanically, just building a robot arm is not an unsolved problem, but the environment we're working on is a confined space. Mm-hmm. So yeah. mechanically, the, the large challenge is building this robot arm small enough to fit into the operating environment. And there's actually a kind of a way to enter through a small hole and then get into the environment and then do the work. And so that, that entrance condition has created a, uh, you know, some constraints on the mechanical design. So that's been one of the large challenges. This thing has to be small to sum that up. Mm. And so that makes the design more critical. Um, and it's a robot, so there's you know, a set of computers running inside. So the electronics design has, you know, brought challenges. Um, similarly, space-based challenges. I'm kind of asking to do a lot in a small space computing-wise. So, um, actually, I've got one version of it right here. Um, it's not a very pretty version of it, but, like, you know, trying to fit fit all the electronics into a small space mm-hmm. is one of the uh, kind of coupled challenges between mechanical and electronics and then bringing all that together with software is kind of what um, uh, is can be you know a daunting task we to do um, uh, couple all this together and so I guess the third main challenge is, is probably the, the software integration of the system because there's kind of a lot going on there yeah I was curious because I'm not really that familiar with the uh, the robotic side of mechanical engineering it's more of what I see is like a, a EE and CS problem combined with a mechanical problem so it's it, there's a lot of integrated systems that 
you have to have a lot of background knowledge in. Like, um, how, how did you get uh, involved in robotics in the past? Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you asked. And it's really interesting you say that because it isn't. Robotics is an integrated field, um, but it's very much a mechanical engineering field because um, it is a it is a physical machine. It is a mechanism. It is a, it's a beam. You know, it has to it has to be designed so it doesn't break and hold load. Mm-hmm. So uh, even though it may seem like an electrical engineering field, it's definitely integrated. But on the other side, we we need uh, the robot needs electronics and the robot needs software so how i um, got involved in robotics i've always knew i wanted to do engineering and i i've been working on mechanical systems casually for a long time and um, actually you know my my father pushed me to look into robotics you know kind of around high school so i started working on a you know like a lego mindstorms project in high school and that you know kind of slowly developed into what i where i am now so i actually you know toured the robotics lab over there in clement and clement hall here at tennessee tech when i was a you know when i was looking for colleges and there was some interest there and so I came to Tennessee Tech for mechanical engineering, and but I still wasn't decided. I, um, you know, some as you know, you have a lot of different directions you could go. You see it your first year, but uh, so at some point in my first or second year, I was sitting on the dorms over there, um, dorm steps. Marshall is not not quite there anymore, but uh, a. Uh, RA came up to me and said, hey, do you want to come to the robotics club meeting? And and so I, I kid you not, I got off the steps of the dorms and walked over to the engineering quad and, and met some electrical engineers, oh, actually, and mechanical engineers, a group of uh, a group of students that were had just put together the robotics club. And so I uh, kind of helped me continue my interest in, um, in robotics that I started previously. And we worked on some projects. We went to a couple of robotics competitions, and um, and they're, we're actually going back to that robotics competition this spring with the Autonomous Robotics Club. Actually, so to come full circle, that was, you know, over almost 15 years ago. Oh wow! And so um, I'm pretty happy to say that um, the club is still alive and active. And uh, so again, we'll be going back to IGBC. So there's my little story about how I got into robotics. Um, and to summarize, you can't do it with just mechanical with just mechanical systems. Yeah. Um, and so uh, that's, uh, I guess, that's how I got here. Well, some uh, don't some robots you can power them like hydraulically, and then we realize that having like electro servos and motors can be a little easier to control and easier uh, or is there well yeah I mean some machines are still I mean some machines are still powered with hydro uh, hydraulic systems Um, robotics not terribly common um, but 
because fine control of hydraulic systems is tricky, Uh, right? So uh, to do, well, uh, one of the common or universal problems that needs to be solved for a robot to do something is position control. Mm -hmm. Either, you know, an arm needs to move the tool to a certain place or or a robot vehicle needs to drive to a certain place. This typically requires fine position control of your of your outputs, your actuators, and this can be done with hydraulic systems, but it is much easier and now more cost effective with 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 electronic motors um, and a computer feedback, yeah. computer control. How uh, sophisticated are the modern uh, con- uh, robot arms like the? Um, the ones like in manufacturing and the most like industry grade compared to say the early ones like are, are they more durable and are like at a at a similar scale to like cpu development or are they still like in the early development well uh robot and say robot manipulators robot arms are have matured uh, are a mature technology okay. so I mean um, so in the you know really in the 80s um, traditional what we call traditional robotic manufacturing involved using large-scale robot arms typically a six degree of freedom robot arm you may have seen them in a you know picture of a, of a automotive factory yeah. doing welding jobs or other repetitive jobs that type of um, that type of technology is is uh, very mature and effective at uh, automating certain types of manufacturing tasks. Uh, those types of tasks are typically large, large production, large part volume, hmm. and n- not terribly flexible um, environments. So uh, places like uh, you know assembly lines and um, other large-scale production jobs and those arm te- that arm technology is still developing every day but is somewhat reached a fairly optimal point and but there is a kind of a new type of arm that is developed out of the uh, need that that type of technology doesn't provide and for instance, those large-scale robot arms must operate in an environment without humans. Mm-hmm, yeah. So while though that um, that technology is successful, it is rigid in that sense. So there's a, a kind of a new robot arm that's developed out of that called the Cobot, Cobot. which is collaborative robot. And so the the real one of the the uh, new technologies that we're seeing is this is really the safety features that allow um, a, a robot arm to exist and work with a human in a in a local space um, so the robot arms I mentioned that that have been used since the 80s you would never be in proximity with while it was turned on yeah. and this uh, but now there is a demand for a more flexible automotive manufacturer uh, uh, more flexible automated manufacturing ability um, for instance not every company has the ability to build an assembly line to around their 
next product. And so this ability for a more flexible robotic work cell will allow for smaller companies to, to utilize the benefits of, of automation. So there are some new robot arm technologies, and mostly they are you know in that cobot safety area. Okay. Yeah. So does that mean that has like sensors to detect like human? That's or? that's part of it. There, part of it is the sensing has come a long way, yeah. um, but it's a little more than that. Mm-hmm. A back to, compared to a traditional system, you could use a sensor to sense whether a human is in the field or not, in the area or not, and then immediately turn the system off if the human entered. That would, that's not the type of safety feature I'm talking about. The, this modern system would actually uh, allow the robot to continue to operate with the, the human in that space through some extra sensors. There's more sensors in the robot arm, sens- more sensing at each joint. Um, and one way that can be handled is through through modeling and through 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 a feedback control system that predicts how much power is required to do a certain job. Yeah. For instance, if the robot was holding required to hold this microphone here, I could model the you know the the statics that say we need to apply this much load to hold this here. And if those loads are sensed to be different, the robot will detect that as a contact with an unknown environment. So so a little bit more smarts and sensing could, um, are the primary way these safety features are being added. And in general, things are getting a little smaller. Yeah. So the cobot is, uh, not necessarily a direct replacement for the large robot arm that we're talking about, but also a modified robot arm that would work in a different space. So the, the third part of that safety feature was just bring that the scale down a little bit yeah. and move a little slower. Okay. So it would have less power than... But in the scale, if it's going to be a smaller arm, then it should have... Yeah, less power... Less power... And that kind of comes with moving slower, yeah. so you can do, you can do, do your dynamics there. Um, and also the right amount of power. Yeah. So if you think about, again, if it's actually modeling the job it's doing, mm-hmm. less wasted power. Yeah, and, more and Yeah, more efficiency, and that could you know uh, reduce the chance of some damaging impact. Yeah. If you know you're, like you would carefully move something. Right? Yeah. Yeah, fine motor control is something that is hard for, and it's something with the, the biggest motor that you could throw into it, like a industrial application. So it, it would make sense that a, a smaller, more human-friendly robot would also be more efficient and have... Well, I'd imagine that the robot, since you said like it's not going to be in a, a, a dedicated assembly line, then it would be able to be programmed on the fly with like a... Like you would have to have like a... Of a technician to be able to say we we want it to do something else so we can easily change its function. Yeah, that's definitely the goal. And so if you go back to kind of the you know a base definition of robot, you usually see that hear that word reprogrammable. Yeah. So it's not just a machine that can make a very special part. Yeah. It's a machine that can make you know 
a general set of parses reprogrammable and this uh, the ideal cobot would be reprogrammable by a skilled technician mm-hmm. and not require an engineer or roboticist to do that reprogramming and now a traditional robot arm can do that but that reprogrammability is limited okay and so there there definitely is lots of research in the area of uh, custom automated jobs and for small batch jobs that are you know we might do a hundred or a thousand or a dozen parts and then next week want to do a different set of parts. Yeah. And the, the cobot serves a role there in front of uh, manufacturing flexibility. Yeah, that makes sense because the, the original robots you talked about, they're for the big companies that just want to pump out you know hundreds of thousands of this specific part. And they'll probably do that until it either wears out the, the robot or the... Um, the need for it won't be there anymore but the new robots they should be able to be a little more general and they should basically do a lot more than just one job compared to the original one yeah which, yeah which will help smaller companies that have less scale right right be i think what you said is exactly true smaller companies don't have the ability or the scale to build an assembly line yeah but to be competitive, still need to to benefit from automation, or yeah. or may can benefit from automation if we can make it available at the smaller scale. Yeah. So, is a three D printer considered a robot? Oh, okay. So I think so. Well, depending on the way you look at the the um, uh, the definition, it is a gantry robot. So if you if you look at it from our intro to robotics definition of a robotic manipulator, it is a gantry robot. It controls X Y Z position. Yeah. It in some ways is reprogrammable in that I can send it different parts. Yeah. But in some ways it does the same job every time, and then it just prints the part I send it. So. Um, Yes and no. I, you know, that and that, that just shows that that word gets used in a lot of different ways. Um, yeah, sometimes it's placed. I uh, mean, it, uh, it's definitely a neat piece of the technology, but yeah, I was talking to a, a grad student about um, the scalability of 3D printers, and will they ever consider using a 3D printer over, say, stamping or forging apart, or is it, is it just too slow to ever... Compete? Oh, so in, in scalability, you mean part volume, yeah, not part size? Yeah, like past prototyping. Like. And not part size, right? Yeah. yeah, okay. So I think that, again, for small, relatively small jobs, but possibly still production, they are being used now. Really? But it's still a rapid prototyping technology. And especially this type, this type of FDM printer, this is a prototyping machine. It's designed for making parts to test in the lab. Or We make functional prototypes, but it's definitely... FDM is not, was not developed as a production technology. Yeah. And um, injection molding 
is more cost effective at large scale than FDM. Yeah. And I don't know where that transition is, but always will be past a certain level. Um, but there's there's certain things you can do with certain technologies in 3D printing that are not available in those tr- traditional um, with those traditional manufacturing technologies. So, hmm. but things are changing, yeah. you know, and because again, in, I think printers are used in production in smaller scale. Huh. Yeah, I'm wondering what um, if they're using more advanced parts than PLA because of the uh, material property. Yeah, PLA is PLA is a good beginner material because it's forgiving in terms of settings, yeah. but it's not terribly desirable in its most natural sense. Yeah. There's some modified PLAs that perform a little better. Yeah. Now, you know, our our engineering mechanical engineering fabrication lab is using a modified PLA for general purpose parts, mostly because the the users uh, some a lot of the users are are new to 3D printing, yep. and it's forgiving on the bed surface. But this, I've been printing at a PETG. It's a little tougher than PLA. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it has similar strength, but it's a little tougher. And uh, but it's not. It's it has limitations yeah. and, and benefits. What do you think about um, other materials like carbon fiber? 3D printing, like I, I was talking to Bryson. I didn't even know that he, uh, it was able to 3D print any material other than like a plastic. Because isn't carbon fiber more of a advanced um, strand? It's not, it's not like plastic where you can like melt it down and then re- remake, uh, just based on heat, right? Yeah, um, carbon. You know, you know, carbon fiber printing is a. Um, now available technology, mm. and it does. It does, of course, um, is it's pretty high end, and so we're not doing it for general purpose prototyping. But again, here in mechanical engineering, we do have a carbon fiber printing machine downstairs, and in general, it's primarily printing in nylon. So it's a nylon FDM. So it's a machine very similar to this. That you know, nylon is injected off the spool in a controlled manner and nylon itself has a uh, a, a lot higher strength maybe 25 percent strength maximum or possible strength increase over over your other materials but the carbon fiber is introduced on a second filament and placed in a almost in a support structure manner uh, not support structure in a um uh, Integrate uh, internal um, like an stiffening structure, and so once again, the carbon fiber printing that we're doing here has is primarily nylon printing mm-hmm. with a carbon fiber strand that's printed from a second extruder to stiffen or strengthen the overall structure. Okay. And the um, theoretically, some of the, the strengths can go way up yeah. um, with those parts. But we, um, they like all high strength composite materials. They tend to have you know some issues with brittle failures and other things. Yeah. The one project that I've worked on that we use that is the the human powered vehicle competition. Something yeah. I'm I'm fortunate to be have been involved in for years. 
Um, it's been a few years since we've been into a race, and hopefully we'll get to go back soon. But we've been working on printing, um, you know, some of the pre preliminary engineering work on making a carbon fiber frame, mm -hmm. and they've been using that nylon carbon fiber combination print to make couplers. Okay. At yeah. a, for that bicycle or vehicle project. All right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes more sense than just printing carbon fiber straight into a, a prototype part. It doesn't seem conducive to 3D printing. Yeah. I, plastic. I think for one, it would be too brittle. I think just pure carbon fiber from FDM would be brittle and also is expensive. Oh, yeah. So even the nylon with some carbon fiber in it, the price tag goes up on materials quite a bit. And so a pure carbon fiber is probably cost preventative, especially yeah. for our prototyping and experimenting stuff. All right. Yeah, I definitely wanted to ask you about my 3D printing because <laughs> since you actually have one and you've done a a lot more than uh, I have. Yeah, I've done quite much. a lot for my needs, for prototyping needs. Um, it is interesting because, yeah, 10 years ago I was making brackets on a little three-axis mill, and <laughs> we know we still do that when yeah. needed, but sometimes um, it's a little faster to, to make a bracket, yeah. get your printer to make a bracket. A bracket. Um, one of the other just exciting things is where you know, I'm actually, I've got parts waiting to go on our Mark Forge uh, metal printer. So actually oh, here yeah. in, here, I mean, also here in the mechanical engineering department, or it's housed in the college, but it's here with us in the building, we have uh, a uh, this direct laser sintering printer, direct oh. metal laser sintering printer. And, you know, we've spent about a year getting that system set up and tested and I'm actually fortunate to to be getting some parts run through there this coming season and you know that material we are able to do stainless steel or aluminum different different um, metals allows me to bring that strength up tenfold from what I can do with my my plastic here so and I have a few parts on the on the robot we're making actually that are um, uh, have some critical areas that, that need that high strength for reliability. And, and so we are, you know, really fortunate to be in the age when I can't just print plastic. I can print carbon fiber or, or, or stainless steel if I yeah. need to. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I, I never thought that they would able, be able to, you know, you, you see like the old, um, like blacksmith, the way that they have to go through all the, you know, taking out the carbon and like smashing it into like make it into the um material well 